Well, welcome back, everybody, to Live Longer, the podcast. And today I have a really, really amazing cardiologist in studio with me. He's a consultant cardiologist at the Royal Brompton Hospital and a senior lecturer at Imperial College. And he and I have shared many, many patients over the course of over a decade, but particularly so since the onset of the pandemic. So join me in a warm welcome of Dr. Alexander Line. Alex, welcome. Thank you, Millie. As I mentioned, we've shared so many patients over the course of, of a long time, but particularly so in the last year with a combination of cardiac manifestations underpinned by an unleashing of the immune system. And tell me, how has um, the last two years changed your practice or what learnings have you made over the last two years? So, yes, I mean, it's really changed the face of medicine, the COVID pandemic. In March 2020, our hospital actually converted into a large COVID-19 intensive care specialist hospital. So we stopped all routine cardiology practice in order to look after people being brought in on ventilators from other intensive cares where they had special cardiac or respiratory needs. And from there, what we saw is this wasn't just a lung virus, but actually the patients often had heart problems. And as cardiologists, we could assess and evaluate that. And then as the year continued in from about May 2020, I started to get referred in the outpatient setting, people with chest pains or palpitations. That's where your heart races spontaneously and maybe reflecting an arrhythmia or breathlessness, either from my lung colleagues, where they couldn't find a lung cause of breathlessness, or from general practitioners, where these people had had COVID but not gone into hospital. So they were generally a younger population from an age range of around 18 to 50, because I'm an adult cardiologist, so I wasn't seeing children. And what we found was that a lot of these people had had COVID, they'd survived at home, they didn't need hospital, but they still had ongoing chest pains, breathlessness, but also lots of other things, brain fog, weakness and, and fatigue. And, and this all became what we now know as long COVID. And we, we are stuck evaluated them, including doing specialist scans of their hearts with something called a cardiac MRI scan, which is the only way to look for inflammation. And we saw it. We saw inflammation of the heart muscle or sometimes of the membrane around the heart. That's called pericarditis and the muscles called myocarditis. And some people have a combination of the two, perimyocarditis. And so we then, we not just using regular heart medication, but also anti-inflammatories and, and finding that they helped and they helped their heart symptoms. But for some people also, the, the more systemic effects like the brain fog, the fatigue and things would also improve with these anti-inflammatories. And then over the, the last 18 months, we've just been seeing more and more people with this long COVID syndrome with chest pains. And then, and then in 2021, as well as the a, a wave at the very beginning of the year in December 2020 and January 2021, which now feels a long time ago, yeah, but we indeed. feel like we're almost we're almost entering into a similar phase now. We, we saw people quite much more rapidly because we'd learned from the first wave, so we were able to see people quite rapidly. 
Uh, and then, and then, of course, there's been the rollout of the vaccine program. And I, I want to start by saying I'm a, a massive supporter of the vaccine program. I think it's one of the things the UK has done very well, effectively, and it has definitely protected people. But we have, in cardiology, seen a, a small number of people who've had the vaccine trigger a heart problem. Now, in my first six months of this year, it tended to be people who had previously had COVID. Some of them had fully recovered. Some of them had the long COVID syndrome. And they and then the vaccine came along and it, it caused chest pain, which they recognised. So they it was like a flare of the pain they'd had during the first uh, COVID infection or what they were continuing to have as part of their long COVID-19 illness, and then the vaccine had aggravated it. So, Alex, would you describe it as like a mini-COVID they were having and, and experiencing? Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, so, so the way I think of this is that the problem is that the virus triggers an immune response. The virus may go into particular tissues in the body, depending on someone's background. So we see it, obviously, in the heart because I'm a cardiologist, but I speak to my kidney colleagues who see their kidney patients get worsening kidney failure. And I see and it in the joints. Specialist. Yeah, exactly. So I think if, if, if you've got a pre-existing problem, I think the virus finds that almost as a vulnerable tissue or organ. But what it does is the virus creates an immune response and then the immune response doesn't turn itself off mm. as it would do normally. And then it's grumbling along and then the vaccine for some people, not everybody, but some people, it's a bit like petrol on the fire causing a flare of the immune response. And for my patients where their immune system has sort of become tuned to their heart muscle or the membrane of the heart in a obviously in an abnormal or dysfunctional way, that the vaccine then flares up that part of the immune system because it's stimulating it with the spike protein on the vaccine and then that aggravates their problem. And then, and then finally, we've got the people who've never knowingly had COVID. They've never had an illness that you think might be a COVID illness. They've, if they've had antibody checks, they've always been negative. If they're screening with lateral flows, they're always negative. And then they have a vaccine and it can trigger a flare of pericarditis or myocarditis where we only have the vaccine as the cause. And in my cardiology clinic, I'm now seeing a lot of these people, but I really want to emphasize the absolute numbers are tiny compared to the number of people who've had a vaccine as a total population of the UK. Of course. And just to frame it for the listener, you're going to be seeing a huge number of these because you're in a, a tertiary care centre in central London. So your practice may not be reflective of what's going on in the community, but you are seeing patients who are getting COVID manifestations, cardiology and vaccine related complications. Absolutely. So so how has my practice changed now? Maybe somewhere between a quarter and a third of the patients in some of my clinics are people where it's COVID or the vaccine or both that have triggered a heart problem for them. Mm. So you've become a, you really have developed a subspecialty expertise in COVID manifestations of the heart, haven't you? Yes, just by the way the practice has evolved over the last uh, year and a half to, to year and three quarters. And I think 
in early in the summer of 2020, I just by chance happened to look after a few GPs. And of course, they had the problem themselves, but then went back and started recognizing it in the patients they were looking after and referred them in. Because many of these people, uh, an initial screen of heart tests, such as a simple electrocardiogram called an ECG, which is where you have the stickers on your chest, a simple echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart and, and the heart blood tests, often can come back normal. And so many people who I've looked after have been through other doctors or gone to A&E and been told that everything's okay. And yet when we do a detailed assessment uh, and including this cardiac MRI, we find out that they have had inflammation or still got it very actively grumbling on in their heart. So so it is complex, um, but I also want to say that from the vaccine perspective, there are a, a few comments. One is I've seen it with all three vaccines that are available and used in the UK. So I don't believe there is one vaccine that is in some way worse or safer than the others. The second thing is that also means that the common themes through it is the spike protein, which each of these vaccines is triggered to create in our bodies to create the immune response of vaccination. And then that's what's also common to the natural COVID virus. So maybe it's something about the spike protein and how it triggers immunity in us that is responsible for this unusual immune response. And, and the final thing I wanted to just emphasize, because there may be people listening who are thinking, crikey, I might have this, is for the people who don't go into hospital and had COVID at home and then have come to see me, whilst this is obviously serious, and particularly if it's making them feel unwell, it's very rare for them to have what I would call a, a very serious complication from a heart perspective, where the heart gets weaker and causes heart failure or whether there's dangerous or life-threatening rhythm disturbances, which we call arrhythmias. So, um, so yes, people should be assessed, and obviously we then will treat people on their merits, but I also just want to reassure the li your listeners who may be sort of reflecting that they may have this, that, yes, they should get checked, but the majority of the people I've looked after, I haven't seen serious complications. Good. So, and, and the other thing that, you know, you didn't quite touch on, um, is that your heart going in the background there, Alex? <laughs> Sounds like it, doesn't it? <laughs> your heart monitor is going off. Um, well, I'm glad we got rid of that heart monitor in the background, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. It's the we're, joys we're, of working from home. Again. Yeah, the joys of working from home when you've got your son playing, you know, on their um, iPads, isn't it? Oh, exactly. Modern mm. life. Well, actually, it's also one, one of the things about remote working is we are able to spend more time with our families. Yes. Which has been one of the changes we've all noticed with a move to hybrid working. Mm. And whilst I think we, we miss the opportunity for that in-person doctor-patient interaction, which is so important, and for me, certainly, I really want to move back to a world where at least for the very first or first and second consultations, I'm seeing my patients face to face. It could well be that for follow up, some of some patients, the remote consultation is very convenient at the Brom Royal Brompton Hospital. 
only a quarter of my patients actually live in London. So mm. the majority live outside the open 25. And so the ability to do a Zoom or video consultation and save them the journey in, of course, is convenient to them. Also, I, I believe it, it has a benefit on the environment Yes, of pe- helping people who don't need to then travel in for a consultation that may take 15, 20 minutes and then have to travel all the way home again. Well, if I could pick you up on that point, because I recently interviewed um, Mr. David Bell, a surgeon, and his attitude was that, you know, when you're going to undergo a surgical procedure, you need to gain the trust of your clinician and the patient-clinician relationship is even more important because you're going to have somebody, you know, doing a physical intervention on you. So his perspective was that the quicker the surgeons get back to face to face, the better. However, the counter to that for you and I in the medical specialties are that we can do a significant amount of work remotely because we've built up a relationship already with patients. I mean, some of my patients are in my practice for 10, 15, 20 years and it is extremely handy and it is better for the environment. And we've been doing a lot of work on this podcast about sustainability and how we build a better future and live longer by, you know, addressing the environment. And this is one way that um, healthcare can become more sustainable by having a hybrid approach to delivering some outpatient consultations. Absolutely. And it, it does it does allow us to be also safer for patients at a time when there's a new surge. So here we are, December 2021, with a rapidly growing prevalence of COVID-19 infections in the community. And so particularly for our older, more vulnerable patients, being able to still be able to have follow-up consultations, but spare them the risk of coming into a hospital outpatient clinic and sitting as, you know, if we all reflect on the world before COVID, sitting in packed out patient waiting rooms with lots of family, lots of patients, uh, that obviously now carries certain risks if there's a lot of COVID around. So I think it's safer for many patients. And as you say, better for the environment, better for the cost savings to the patient of the travel costs uh, economically. But there are times when it really is critical that we do have the face-to-face consultation and partly at the beginning to to build that bond of the doctor-patient relationship. And you and I know as doctors, there are some diagnoses that all the best scans and blood tests in the world cannot make and it's being able to physically examine the patient and put it in the context that you pick up something but but conversely for for many patients coming for follow-ups and routine follow-ups where we're monitoring their health in different ways and with remote monitoring technologies, many of this now patients can do at home, particularly for the cardiovascular side of things. Well, actually, and that's where you and I come into it, don't we? Because we've developed a tool with Iona for enabling doctors to remote monitor their patients and to give the right information at the right time. So I think embracing the digital technology, but using it to enhance the patient-doctor relationship is the way of the future. And that's what we discussed with David as well earlier on. Exactly. I think it can be a win-win. And, and, you know, many of my patients have either uh, watches or monitoring devices that they wear, particularly if they're exercising, that they can then share information with me that helps me guide them. Mm. And I, I might finish with a comment and a piece of advice. And this is 
actually only from my experience there's not been a scientific study to uh, prove what i'm about to suggest is correct but i genuinely believe it which is if someone develops the symptoms of covid or if they have a vaccine they should avoid intense exercise for the next two weeks and if it's covid infection for really two weeks from when they fully recovered from the last day of symptoms, mm. which may be four weeks from the beginning. And that's because I've got a cluster of these very athletic individuals who clearly just kept exercising during their COVID illness because that's what they thought would help get them better and paradoxically may have made it worse. And I've had a few patients who've had the vaccine and have then done some intense exercise and the next day woken up with a flare of chest pain and i thought you know if you didn't do the 100 kilometer cycle ride would you have had this now we'll never know uh, but it just seems to me it's something we can control in our in our day-to-day -day life so as a cardiologist i fully promote exercise it's key to long-term health benefits but i think in the context of COVID, to keep yourself safe, if you do have the uh, infection, avoid intense exercise for four weeks, two weeks from the last day of symptoms, and for people after the vaccine, just for the first two weeks, just to mm. keep yourselves as safe as possible. Well, that's very interesting and a really, really good closeout to this morning's session. So thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. And thank you to my listeners. Um, I think you've given us some fascinating perspectives that my listeners will, will truly enjoy. And I hope that they'll send a feedback on Apple Podcasts or even to hello at livelongwithapodcast.com. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Millie.